patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 72 of friends and fellow citizens and the first 2022 episode on the program i'm your host sherman tylowski thank you so much for joining us today i hope you had a wonderful holiday season you're looking forward to the new year if you haven't already make sure to check out our website shermantylowski.com down in the show notes below Check out that link and subscribe to our email list. Make sure that you get your episode notifications, special announcements, promotions, and more right into your email inbox. I hope you will join us, so make sure to sign up for that email list when you are finished with this episode. Today's special guest is Kylie Blakely. Kylie is a fifth-generation Central Florida resident and a leading advocate for veterans in her home state and across the nation. She is a biomedical sciences major at the University of Central Florida and hopes to attend medical school, obtain an MD, and become an anesthesiologist. She is also passionate about health and fitness and she believes body positivity and the effects of social media on young adults are two of the biggest social issues facing younger generations. She does a lot of charity work. She continues to be active. She is also a season ticket holder for Florida theme parks every year since birth, which is something that I think most of us definitely want to have as like a little perk, especially those who are not from Florida. But I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience to get to know Kylie a bit more. And I am so happy for her to be on the program today. Kylie, thank you so much for coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens. Thank you for having me. Before we get into our topic today, which is about veterans, you have a bit of an interesting backstory yourself. Share with us about what this story is how you came to learn about overcoming challenges and dealing with such a setback so early in life and how all of this ties in with your early advocacy and entry into helping veterans and ultimately serving your community. So in my junior year of high school, I was on the soccer team. I was a very athletic kid. I am a very competitive person. So I was a forward and a goalkeeper and I love being a forward, but I like being a goalkeeper a little bit better because it was a little bit more uh, competitive in the sense that I was the one stopping the ball from going in the net. So one game I dove for the ball just outside of the box and I yelled, keep secure the ball. And one of the girls on the other team, she, uh, she didn't seem to like that. She charged and she kicked me so hard in the back of my head that it blew through my head, shattered my cheek and I was unconscious for 10 minutes Nobody could resuscitate me on the field. I was unconscious. And then when they, uh, when they were able to get me to come back around, I wasn't staying around. So they tried to airlift me out. They brought two ambulances on the field before they took me away. And it was just, it was a wild night. I wasn't the only one in the hospital that night. One of my teammates, her shoulder got knocked out of socket. Another girl's lung collapsed. The girl who kicked me, who broke her foot. So it was quite a wild soccer game. I mean, from what they tell me. I use my story to help empower myself and others to say if I could overcome, you know, waking up in the morning, not being able to feel my legs, if I could overcome, you know, getting over post-concussion syndrome and not being able to handle lights, sounds, smells and missing out on my junior and some a little bit of my senior year, I think that I can overcome anything. So by sharing my story with others and by relating the experiences that I've had to veterans I find a common ground that makes me more approachable, that makes me more, you know, understandable that they can talk to me and open up. And I find that a lot of them do enjoy the fact that they do feel like they can open up to me. It's not something that a lot of veterans come across, especially in my line of work. I had an amazing support system. That was what 
really helped me to get through all that. I mean, just before the accident, I was on homecoming court and then I wasn't able to attend homecoming because of it. I was voted for, you know, superlatives within the yearbook and I wasn't even able to show up to the picture day to get the pictures for the yearbook. It was, it was honestly quite devastating to go from playing four sports to being bedridden. Um, I went through a depressive episode through that. I lost some friends and I got to miss out on some of the things that really made high school fun for a lot of people. And for me, especially that was sports. So I completely chalk it up to the fact that I had an amazing support system to help me get through that. So when I was told I couldn't do sports anymore, at least for the time being and uh, combative sports for an indefinite period leading into the, le- the rest of my life, no more contact sports, I decided, you know, after something that's life-threatening and one in three Americans experience concussions, especially if they're, you know, athletes, you know, soccer players, football players, it happens to all of us, but it's just on a scale of how bad it is. And the more you've had, the worse the degree is. So I was able to advocate, my family was able to advocate um, with the school board that if this happens on school property, there should be things lined up for the students that are experiencing post-concussion syndrome. I was on hospital homebound for a year uh, doing at-home school, which a lot of students I think find relatable now is the at-home school aspect of things. So it really opened my eyes to what life could be in the sense that leading others and spending my time volunteering and being a public servant, it's more rewarding than being somebody down there on the field. It gives you an opportunity to be more relatable, come face to face with things that you have never thought about that somebody may be living through and maybe even finding common ground to help them through it. And I found that very fulfilling. So my main goal after high school was to join the military. And I took all my friends on senior skip day to the recruiting office. I went through MEPS and come to find out, you know, I was medically disqualified. I couldn't make it through. So I figured, you know what, after trying for two years, and the whole reason for that was I wanted to, you know, serve my country being a post 9-11 child. And then I also wanted to have the financial aid and stability to get through college, um, which I feel like a lot of young veterans, that's what they really find so alluring about the service is the fact that it can help them get through college. So I took a step back and I thought to myself, all right, so I can't serve my country, but I can serve those who did. And that's what I sought out to do. I started looking into opportunities to volunteer. I started volunteering with the USO, the VA, the VFW. And somebody approached me at a um, modeling event, I think that year, later that year, and said, hey, have you ever thought about, you know, doing pageants? And to me, I've, I've never even seen Miss USA or Miss America all the way through. It wasn't my thing. The most I knew about pageants at the time was, quite honestly, Miss Congeniality or Toddlers and Tiara. So I didn't think much of it. And she kept insisting and insisting. She's like, I really think that you have this voice and this heart for veterans and this, you know, public servant attitude. So I thought, you know what, why not? And I went out and I made service to veterans, my platform, which later developed into Stop Soldier Suicide. And I won my first pageant right out of the gate. So, you know, When things don't go according to plan, sometimes that means that there's a better plan ahead for you. And that's one of the things that I talk about with others. That's such a wonderful story. And I I want to touch upon the public service aspect. President George H.W. Bush used to say public service is a noble calling. You know, what do do you think of that statement and how you think it relates to your early, I guess, calling, you could say, for something like helping veterans? So I don't think that it's a greater calling. I think it's a calling that each of us has inside of us. You know, there's something about the holiday season, which is right around the corner, that makes you feel good about helping others. And, you know, that's why I think that it's great that here in Florida, we have scholarships available for students who like to volunteer. And it's, you know, an incentive to get them to do it. But once you get them to do it, long after they graduate, they're still volunteering with the organizations that they found passion through. So I think that everybody has a little bit of that calling inside of them. It's just a matter of finding out what aspect of public service you would like to go into. And I think it just it doesn't just help the local community and the community at large. I think it can help 
the United States on a greater portion of things if we start taking care of our own and taking care of our communities and giving back where we can. And it's not just like tossing your change into the Ronald McDonald Fund at the end of the day with Publix or wherever you may shop. It's also, you know, helping somebody to their car with groceries. It's something that makes you feel good inside. And for me, that's aiding veterans because while there are a lot of aspects out there to help them, they're not always within grasp. And that's where I come in. I think that's very well put. Not to mention the fact that public service is such a large field, and oftentimes it can be really challenging to figure out what one's strengths are so that you can find your place within the realm of public service. Did you have any challenges of finding what that niche was within such a large area of public service, like helping veterans? So I noticed, uh, looking back through the VA's public files talking about their suicide rates and the different generations that are struggling mentally and physically. And I noticed it's mostly my generation, the post 9-11 generation. So I started thinking to myself, what are some of the things that these veterans that are within my age range? And that's a very loose term. Most of them are ages 18, some in some cases, unfortunately, 17. So 18 all the way to, I'd say, 36, so mid-30s. Um, the ones that are still serving currently that were alive to see 9-11 are the ones that were, you know, alive to see the after effects in public schools when it was broadcasted. It really encouraged a lot of young Americans to, to go serve their country. And a lot of them felt that call to serve. So I started looking into what I could do to aid them. Now, coming from an athletic background, I find that working out or going on group runs or doing these big fitness events like these races, uh, Tough Mudder, Rugged Maniac. I have the Disney Half Marathon weekend coming up this coming weekend. Those things are things that excite me and I thoroughly enjoy. And there's a huge network of people that help others along the way, especially with the Disney Half Marathons. There's an entire Facebook page where everybody reaches out to each other and says, hey, I'm looking for running shoes or, hey, I'm looking for socks. What do you recommend? I'm doing this training split. What do you recommend? It's a very tight-knit community of people that like to uplift other people. Um, And they're from all different age ranges, all different community backgrounds, all different shapes, sizes, you name it. And it's very inspiring. So I started thinking to myself, well, if this is something that I enjoy, maybe it's something that they enjoy. So I started looking into the demographics of the veterans that are coming out of the service and struggling. And there's two paths that I noticed most of them take and some of them Uh, have been living in this community where you're told what to eat, what to do, what to wear every single day for years and years. So when they get out, they either continue that discipline, which a lot of them do, or they go the complete opposite way. They eat what they want. They sleep when they want. They wear what they want. And they don't care what anybody says. And they'll grow these big, long beards. And they get into fitness. On both sides of things, the one thing that they have in common is fitness. So I partnered with the Robert Warriors Foundation. That's where I truly felt a big calling. They partnered with Vet TV and they partnered with all the military bases from California down to Florida. And they do these hikes all across the United States. And now they're branching out to other countries. I think we had one in downtown London in the UK about two months ago. So it's cool that this community is not just helping the veterans within the United States, but veterans abroad that are struggling with PTSD and its after effects. Wow, that's a that's such an amazing realization. Obviously, you know, seeing all the different paths that that you could take, you know, to serve veterans. And um, if I may say so myself, personally, since I went to school in London, I loved when you mentioned uh, the city that I called home for three years. And uh, it's it is a great place to run a marathon, by the way. Just uh, uh, for anyone who's interested in crossing Tower Bridge and Westminster Bridge and all the rest. Um, I want to now let's shift gears a little bit into now some of the issues that are face that are facing America's veterans and uh, Kylie. Before we recorded, I um, I asked if um, you could provide an overview of some of the issues. You know, maybe let's for the sake of brevity, you know, facing maybe the top three to five that face American veterans. Uh, what what do you think are some of those issues that you think are currently be addressed, but maybe not addressed enough, or maybe any other ones that uh, we need to look more into, both in government and as a nation as a whole? 
I would certainly say there's at least a big top three that need to be addressed. And that would have to be the lack of preparedness that the American military has for the veterans that are in high risk situations. For example, Kandahar Airfield Base, Afghanistan, which is no longer an issue because we pulled out of Afghanistan. But, you know, the veterans that served there are still serving just in different areas. So when they come from that high stress background where they're getting, you know, hummed essentially every other day, they're getting attacked by the enemy every other day. And due to the laws of engagement, they can't engage. And, you know, we could talk about pulling out of Afghanistan and how that affected a lot of veterans. Um, We saw a spike in veteran suicide, as a matter of fact, within that month that was just detrimental to the cause. It was awful uh, because they felt like their service, what that nothing was worth it, that everything that they had worked for for the past 18 years was just flushed down the toilet. And the government refused to acknowledge that. So that's one thing we could touch on. But my biggest three that I bring up, you know, in pageant interview is the lack of preparedness for veterans exiting the service and reintegration into society. Like, let's set them up with jobs. Uh, For example, I hate to compare it, but the inmate work release centers at prisons, you're sending these inmates on day jobs like to Panera or to Duncan or to Baskin Robbins where they can work, they can slowly integrate into society. They're earning a little bit of money to put aside to go towards a home. They get a uniform, they get a steady job. uh, And then they eventually get transportation. They get transportation to and from their jobs. So why aren't we doing that for veterans if we're doing it for inmates? It's something that I think truly would help them, especially for those that are in infantry and don't really have uh, work relatable <laughs> skill sets unless you're, you know, becoming a janitor or any other type of job situation. So reintegration into society, family preparedness and empathy on behalf of your leadership. I'm seeing a big trend, especially within the past five years on paper of toxic leadership and lack of situational awareness by leadership over what these people are going through. Wow. And let's, let's go in the first issue and you brought up Afghanistan. I want to touch upon that since it is still very much fresh in uh, the minds of the American people and not just here in America, but across the world. In your experience, what do you think are the effects of the withdrawal of Afghanistan on our veterans. And for the sake of this conversation, we won't delve into the strategy part, but really just about the individual impact that such a withdrawal had on our troops there. So I think it's definitely a non-bipartisan issue. Um, Trump announced that we were going to pull out of Afghanistan during his presidency and then Biden followed through. It was something that they both um, at one point at least agreed on that it was a good idea to pull out of Afghanistan. And I think a lot of veterans would agree, but that should have happened back during the Bush administration. Um, After we did what we had to do, or at least during the Obama administration in some opinions after we killed bin Laden, Um, once that was accomplished and the Taliban was, you know, kind, not certainly diminished, but taken down a few notches to the point where the local forces that we had been training for the past 20, so 20 or so years could take over and essentially do what their militia and military were designed to do, what we trained them to do. Um, However, it was a rushed process because we began negotiating with terrorists. And they don't care what you negotiate about. Um, And unfortunately, even with training their militia and their military, there's always going to be that what if, like who's there. And I think that we discovered that during the pull out of of, uh, Afghanistan in late August 2021. As we began pulling out, we noticed Taliban forces were showing up at the door of the cities and the doors of the towns. And they kind of knew what was going on, which means that there was definitely some inside people that were flying under the radar, which happens, unfortunately, with any of this stuff. So as we began pulling out, they began taking over the cities. And due to the laws of engagement, our military could not engage. And the Taliban, they don't have the laws of engagement. They, uh, They were killing children at the gates in front of their families. They were killing wives and husbands in front of their families. They, and I think one of the most touching pictures and one of the most touching things that I think opened the eyes of the American public was the mother passing her child up to an American soldier over the wall to get him to safety. I think that's what really opened people's eyes to what exactly was going on. 
Now, there was a rogue team of U.S. veterans uh, that rescued our allies, the people that were translating, uh, the families that had housed us, fed us, the ones that helped us through this entire thing. We left them behind, and that was not a part of the deal. And that's where I think a lot of veterans came into the conclusion that they wanted to do their part. They wanted to keep up their end of the bargain. They wanted to do what they could to help save these families that were most certainly facing persecution and eventually death. So I think everybody's heard of Operation Pineapple Express, where the rogue team of U.S. veterans uh, rescued the Afghans left behind, which was very noble. And it felt good and patriotic and American to go back and keep up our end of the bargain. It was a very rushed process. Now, there are veterans that agree that pulling out was the right thing. And there's a lot of veterans that don't agree. It's a nonbipartisan issue that, you know, the veterans didn't exactly see eye to eye with our government on. So some of them have gone back since then to essentially finish the job, but a lot of them struggled mentally post pullout in late August of 2021. And we saw a spike, I want to say at least 23% over the 22-day average statistic of of veteran suicide. We won't have a specific number from the VA until the end of this year, unfortunately, but it was such a drastic spike that the suicide hotline was putting people on hold. And that's something that should never happen. Because people that had served their 20 years, four years to 20 years, they um, they felt like their work in Afghanistan was diminished. They felt like all the sacrifices that they made with their families, that they made with their youth, that they made with uh, their life choices were diminished in that moment of pulling out of Afghanistan. We saw such a drastic spike that we don't know the numbers specifically as of right now from the VA. And even then it won't be an accurate representation because what about the people that weren't checking in with the VA? What about the people that weren't calling the veterans crisis line or the veteran suicide hotline? That's where the irreverent warriors and some of these other organizations come in because if you can't get in touch with one, maybe you can get in touch with the next or the next or the next, or even calling a battle buddy just to keep going one more day. So I think that's where that really comes in handy is these different organizations uh, because it helps keep people in check and it ca- it gives people an opportunity to say one more day. Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll never forget seeing that photo and I'm sure people listening have seen it as well. Where do we go from here now? It is always a very difficult question, but I think a lot of times when we figure out a foreign policy strategy, we don't often think about veterans enough. We might think of the economic objectives. We always think of what the next target is. It is a threat that is always changing when it comes to national security and where we want to go. But what about the consideration for those who do come home and for those who did serve for all those years for our nation? So... There's two organizations that I'd like to talk about at this time that do really good things for that aspect. Um, And there's Operation Roll Call, which I think a lot of people have heard about. And there's a battle buddy program where you check in on the people that you were deployed with. And you do that every so often just to see how they're doing, like a wellness check. Um, I think at some point in time, we've all called up a friend from high school that we've lost touch with and just try to see where they're at in life. Like, Hey, how have you been? Would you like to go out and, you know, catch up over coffee? It's refreshing and it's nice to see a familiar face. So veterans have caught on to the fact that they have the opportunity to do that, even from across the United States and through COVID, uh, these Skype coffee calls and, uh, Skype 5 PM office calls where people will, you know, crack open a bottle of wine or a bottle of champagne and just chat it up with friends in a group chat of five or more on Skype. And I think that that's really great. So Operation Roll Call and the Battle Buddy program, they do a lot for that. But I think that it's one of the number one issues facing veterans today, from my opinion, at least. And once again, I'm not somebody who has served, but I've worked a lot with the people who have. And that's reintegration into society. Um, Some veterans don't have employable skills that they could use. For example, infantry. Uh, It's one of the biggest running jokes within the military. And once again, people within the military, they'll pick on each other. There's a lot of camaraderie there, which I find refreshing. And it's kind of reminiscent of my sports days, the camaraderie there. You can pick on somebody from your own team, 
but God forbid somebody from the other team picks on somebody from your own team. You know, it's a, it's a brotherhood or in some cases a sisterhood. So I think that the reintegration into society is something that needs to be talked about more. You know, we spend about six months on average training, you know, people to go overseas. We spend those six months with basic training um, in the case of the army AIT to get them ready for service. But realistically, what are we doing to help prepare those veterans for reintegration into society? We got them ready to go to battle. Why don't we get them ready to go home? So once they decide, hey, I'm not reenlisting or, hey, I'm retiring, there needs to be at least a four-step program, which a lot of veterans have talked about, to get them ready to either A, transition into the career field uh, with employable skills, good references, uh, a good resume they could have a class on. That's nothing. Colleges do that. As a matter of fact, the work release centers and a lot of prisons do that for their prisoners. They get them set up with jobs at Panera, Baskin Robbins, Dunkin' Donuts. They give them reliable transportation, set them up with resume building you know, classes. We could do that for our veterans very easily, but it's not something that we do. So that's one of the things that I think I would like to touch on. It wouldn't cost taxpayer money at all. I think a lot of people would volunteer to aid veterans transitioning. Here's a question that I just came up with about uh, 30 seconds ago, and that is with the ongoing supply chain crisis occurring around the world, what do you think of the idea of prioritizing some of those jobs, whether it's hospitality or say, a truck driver job, and using those to funnel in with this idea of bringing veterans back into the civilian life? So some job skills are transferable. For example, I'm going to talk about the Army for a little bit here. They do a lot for uh, their service members. But once again, they're the largest branch. Uh, The Army has 68 whiskey, and that's a combat medic, uh, for those who don't know. So when you're a combat medic, you're not employable as a nurse when you get out but you are when you're in. And it makes absolutely no sense to me because you've had more on-the-job training than somebody exiting nursing school, especially right now with COVID, uh, people taking online lab courses. You don't know what it's like working under pressure. You don't know what it's like uh, tapping IVs and moving vehicles when you're shaking and you're nervous and you have somebody's life in your hands from you know people telling me their experiences. I feel like 68 whiskeys are most certainly employable, at least at a nurse's level. And that's why when they go to apply to nursing school, they don't have to take as many classes as a regular nursing student. So I think that that's something that needs to be readdressed, especially in today's society where we need more nurses. Um, And then there's levels of 68 Whiskey where they do have medical training from an institution. And those are usually ones that transfer over into working at the VA. Now, there's other jobs like infantry that they don't have transferable job skills, but they most certainly can find things uh, to teach them. For example, let's say every other Saturday a month you take a class and that class can get you certified for um, the workforce. You could do welding, you could do uh, mechanics. There's a lot of military mechanics and they get out and they open up their own shops. So these are transferable things that I think we could get them certified into reintegration into society very easily. So that's one of the things that I think we can do. Exactly. Uh, Something definitely for all of us to think about, something for policymakers to think about for sure. Let's move on to something that is for sure, you know, a a big topic of consideration within DC all the time. In fact, there's, you know, two committees, you know, one house, one Senate counterpart as well that deal with obviously veterans issues. And we're talking particularly about the, the VA, you know, obviously I think we're all very, at least vaguely familiar with the VA and, you know, how, and what the, the, the role is, but what do you think are some of the underlying issues that you think the VA is coping with right now that you you might feel like there should be more awareness for, um, or at least some kind of policy or legislative side of things that can help uh, alleviate some of some of those issues. So I think one of the biggest things that we need to address with the VA is their waiting times. Um, that's absolutely unacceptable. You know, you go to a regular hospital, and with Tricare and various other um, healthcare providers, you can only go to certain places. So especially in, you know, the Midwest, 
the only areas where these veterans can get seen is the VA. And we're talking an hour to two hour drive. I was talking to a gentleman I did an interview um, earlier in 2021 with a gentleman who was driving all the way from Jacksonville to Gainesville, which is easily a two hour drive with traffic just to get service for his cancer. And it was service related cancer from the burn pits. Um, if for those of you who aren't familiar, we were burning things over in Afghanistan and it's most certainly going to end up being our generation's agent orange. And I encourage you to, a uh, take a look into social media and take a look on the news because there are going to be articles coming out fairly recently about how toxic these burn pits were to our veterans. And it's something that's going to come up addressed probably within the next presidential election is how this is going to be approached. And if we're going to give it the agent orange approach. So he was driving all the way from Jacksonville, where my title of services with the Miss America organization to Gainesville. So I wrote a letter to our governor here in Florida, Ron DeSantis, who was a Navy veteran. And he responded almost instantly. His secretary and I worked hand in hand. Um, we were able to essentially work with the VA and the VFW to get funding to open three more VA hospitals here within Florida by the end of 2022. So most are still under construction, unfortunately, due to COVID back in 2020 when I started this process. Um it took the back seat as COVID really kind of swept the nation and a lot of construction workers were laid off, but we're back in the full swing of things here in Florida. Uh, the construction for the VA centers are reopening. So I think the biggest thing now that they're opening in areas where our veterans here have them within reach, I think that that's something that other states can take into account that maybe they can follow that lead or at least these insurance agencies could say, Hey, I see that you don't live in this area but you're struggling with A, B, or C. Why don't we allow you to go to this hospital or this local clinic where you can receive treatment? It, it would cost absolutely nothing to these insurance agencies to say, hey, instead of driving two, four, one, two, three, four hours to seek help, here's one within your community. And then you're keeping you know, food on the table for a local doctor or a local nurse. It's definitely something that can be achievable. And I've been doing it here in Florida. So I think other states should follow that lead. You know, when we think about the, you know, the role of government, we think about the, obviously the need for caring for veterans. You know, I, I do think that there is uh, an area which is not going to be resolved anytime soon, but it's something that um, it's, is certainly out there, which is really the role of the VA and how how that fits in with some of those nonprofits. You know, you mentioned obviously a couple of nonprofits before, you know, what what do you think is the best kind of symbiotic relationship, so to speak, between you know what government can do, what it can't do, and what the what nonprofits can and can't do, and how we can kind of meld these two players together so that we can mitigate some of those issues that are facing veterans today. So I personally think that what the government can't do, the people can. And I personally have lived through it, so I can attest to it. Take the initiative, go out into your community, um, maybe do it anonymously, reach out on forums, reach out on social media, reach out through these organizations like the Irreverent Warriors Foundation, say, hey, I noticed we don't have A, B, or C in this community. What can we do to come together as a community to help aid those living here? Um, Osceola County, uh, where I grew up, about Three months ago, there was a big news story on it. This elderly veteran, I think he served in uh, Vietnam. He was handicapped. He couldn't get up and down stairs, and he loved going to the local church. Well, the people that you know go to that church, they took some of the money that they donate every single Sunday, and they decided to build a more accessible ramp because their ramp was older. It was harder for him to get up that ramp on his own without aid. And there's something to be said about a veteran's sense of pride when they get to the certain age where they can't do the things that they once could do with ease. And it kind of hurts their pride a little bit to ask for help. So when we make things a little bit easier so that they may not have to ask for help, I think that, that really aids them in that sense. So what our government can do, our local government can, and then when our local government can, we can. It's just all about taking the initiative and taking that extra step to help. And it's something that's fun. You know, I personally enjoy these hikes that we do on the weekends with the Irreverent Warriors Foundation. We plan them out months in advance. Uh, we go to these fun destinations. I've done Jacksonville, Daytona, um, Boca Raton here in Florida. 
There was one in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and they're all over the place. It's accessible. It's within reach. If there's not a hike here, there's going to be a hike down there. It's a place where they can meet up and it gets the attention of the local community. So people down in Boca Raton, they saw us hiking and that, you know, piques their interest. They see the flags. They see all these veterans in little short shorts, which is, you know, their ranger shorts or their silkies is how some of them call them. And they see that and they're like, what's going on? Is there a parade? What are you doing? And that starts the conversation. And I think that's where all this begins is starting the conversation. Because once people understand what's going on, they want to help. It's the American way. Oh, you said right there at the end. I love that so much because that is really what it's all about, is about starting these conversations. These episodes obviously are all about starting the conversation, not ending the conversation there, which is one episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens for sure. What can you tell us about some of the work that Prevent Soldier Suicide has done and what other affiliate organizations have been doing to make people aware that it's not just a number, but really a number of individuals who served and people whom we should be called to assist in any way possible? So you said it right there. It's more than just a number. And I think that that's where a lot of people get desensitized to what actually is going on is when victims of a tragedy become a statistic or become that number. They're more than a number. That was a mother. That was a father. That was a daughter. That was a son. That was a niece, nephew, you name it. That was somebody with a family, somebody with people who cared about them. You know, I think all of us, we, we think about veterans and we could at least think about three or four people that we know personally from meeting them, going to school with them, somebody in our family, or even us ourselves, you know, and somebody knows somebody who is a veteran. And I want everybody to take a moment and think what would happen if you lost that somebody, how would that affect your life? How would that affect the trajectory, the trajectory of your life? And that's one of the things I talk about on stage and at these meetings and at these proclamations is think about the veterans, you know, and how the trajectory of your life would have changed should they be gone tomorrow. And it's devastating. You see this look of sadness overtake everybody's face. Uh, We're talking grandparents, we're talking parents, people, not just that they're related to, but people that they know. And it's absolutely devastating. So when we step away from it being a number and we take it personal as we should, Uh, There's a lot that can be done. So Prevent Soldier Suicide eventually evolved into Stop Soldier Suicide. And I partnered with Stop Soldier Suicide within the last year. I became a battalion leader. And that was a very exciting thing for me because I'd look up to them for a lot of answers. I'd look to them for a lot of aid. And they eventually reached out and they said, hey, we see what you've been doing. Would you like to join us? Now, when you think about businesses and you think about Uh, different people competing against each other. For example, Burger King and McDonald's or the Chum Bucket and the Krusty Krab for people my age, they combat. And in the case of veteran suicide, all these organizations partner hand in hand for people that the USO can't help. And the USO is more of an entertainment side of things um, these days. Other organizations can. So if somebody's not going to the VFW, they can go to the American Legion. Or if somebody doesn't want to do the hikes with the Irreverent Warriors Foundation, they can go on, you know, bar crawls with another organization or motorcycle rides. There's a lot of veteran motorcycle clubs where they travel across the stage or they travel across the country or they do these poker runs for fundraisers. You know, we have the Toys for Tots Drive every December. I think everybody's familiar with that the Marines put on. And these organizations all come together for one common cause, and that's serving those who served us. And that's serving the community. With Stop Soldier Suicide, they not only partner with other brands and organizations, they partner with ones that can aid veterans in a better way that they can. So, for example, instead of saying, hey, this is our territory, you can't be doing what we do. They say, I see that this veteran enjoys doing what you do, and this one enjoys this, and this one enjoys this. Let's do a big event where all of us are at it. So when you go to the Urban Warriors hikes, you have different veteran-owned businesses. You have different organizations because, you know, it's a preference thing. Somebody may not like one, but they really fit in with the next. So Stop Soldier Suicide, uh, what I do for pageants and what I do for my platform. And with my platform, I donate a lot to veteran-owned businesses. I partner and sponsor a lot of veteran-owned businesses. I promote them, for example, 
um, Mission 22, the Irreverent Warriors Foundation, and then there is um, 22 Sierra, which is the official coffee sponsor. And I think everybody enjoys coffee uh, for the Irreverent Warriors Foundation. 100% of their proceeds goes to the Burn Pits 360 organization. So they're partnered with three places right there just to aid each other. It's a community filled with camaraderie that you don't see in other places. So when I say prevent soldier suicide and now I've partnered with Stop Soldier Suicide, I mean I've worked with the VA, the VFW, the American Legion, the USO, uh, 22, Mission 22. I've worked with Operation Roll Call. I've worked with the Irreverent Warriors Foundation. And I've also worked with uh, the Battle Buddies program. I travel across the United States whenever I can. I speak at different opportunities everywhere I can to help spread this platform. Because once again, it's about making a conversation. It's about opening people's eyes to what they can do as an American. That's truly amazing, Kylie. And I, I just want to take a moment to say that I truly admire what you're doing because it's not easy to juggle all these things going on and the fact that you're also still in school too. And it's, uh, it, I, I don't know how you do it. And, uh, I, you know, if you, if you got more than 24 hours a day, I think that's a little unfair. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, by the way, I can always use, uh, some delicious coffee, and help support veterans too. I think that'll wake me up better than some of those store-bought brands that I get. <laughs> I'll get a bit more of a kick maybe, that, something that I'll... Oh, they definitely have the- quite a bit of kick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know where I'll miss that on the in the ingredients list, but I, I just know that well, the, the confidence uh, for me to to get some of that in the morning. Um, I want to turn to something that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the issues that are facing veterans, which is the toxic leadership. And um, could you explain a bit more about what that means and how can we breed a new generation of leaders, especially since we're young folks and we're tr- always trying to figure out ways for young folks and future generations to um, be leaders as well um, as the years go by? So I think one of the biggest things, uh, my dad is a leader within his community, with his business. Um, Growing up and seeing what he does with his employees, it really stood out to me. And I think that all of us within the workforce and all of us that have you know, been employed by different companies and agencies at some point in time have experienced at least one instance of a toxic workplace. I think it's a relatable thing that we all have in common. And the military is not exempt from that, except in the fact that it's at a more intense level. Um, You know, I think we've all experienced a bad professor at one point in time or a bad boss at one point in time where we have nobody to go and talk to about this to get the resolution to the issue at hand. You know, you could go to HR, but let's say HR is buddy-buddy with that boss. Next thing you know, you're looking down the barrel of losing your job, possibly. Or let's say you go to the dean and say, this professor, all of us, everybody in all of his class has signed this petition, and this professor is giving us this amount of issues. Is the dean really going to do anything about it? You're coming to them with an issue. It's all a matter of them resolving it. So I think it comes down to the fact that people within power should never abuse that power. And if they show signs of abusing that power over other people and losing their sympathy, and like in my instance, in my experience, losing their humanity and their sympathy over people and, you know, people's problems, you're not just a leader. You're something that you're somebody that these people look up to. So you should aspire to be somebody that they look up to. I like to say this in the sense that everybody's experienced it. There's a difference between a leader and a boss. A boss will tell you how to do things. A boss will delegate chores. A boss will delegate uh, jobs, tell you what to do, how to do it, and expect it to be done to their standards, whether or not they explain what those standards are. And you have to figure it out along the way. That's what a boss does. A leader is somebody that will show you how to get it done And a leader is also somebody that will listen to your complaints and help get it done in the best possible way. A leader is somebody that will take a step down and do the job with you to ensure that it's done right and done to their expectations. That is the difference between a boss and a leader. And I think the military, uh, from a lot of the conversations I've had with veterans and the reasons why they've exited the military and the reasons why they've... uh, sought work and life elsewhere, or even transition from one branch to the other. A lot of people 
leave the Marines and either transition into the Army or the Navy just for a better quality of life, a better family life, because a lot of them have issues with their families at certain points in time because they're taking their stressors from work home. So I think if the chain of command within different military branches could acknowledge at least that there's a problem at hand that needs to be fixed between hiring or, in this instance, promoting bosses and t- instead of leaders, then we can help fix that. Um, it's all a matter of just understanding that the people that work for you are people. They're not machines. They're people with families. They're people with you know, past trauma in the instance of the military. They're people that have feelings and think. So I think at the point in time when the military understands that there's a difference between a leader and a boss and that the toxic chain of command thing is the reason why people are leaving the military or at least transitioning into other branches and their attrition rates are unfortunately rising. Once they acknowledge that problem and begin to fix it, that's when things are going to get better. That's very well said, and it reminds me a little bit about an episode we did a few weeks ago about General Daniel Morgan of the Continental Army, and the fact that when he was at the Battle of Cowpens, which was a very landmark battle, he didn't focus on telling his troops what to do. He went to every single campfire, every single tent, and told them what their higher purpose was, or really reminded them of what their higher purpose was and presenting that vision for what they could achieve by beating the British at Calpens. And this is a really good transition into our reflection phase on Washington's principles of patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, and civility. Kylie, out of these, which one or which ones do you think stand out the most and are most relevant to today's conversation and why? I think that that would have to be national unity, Uh, especially in today's day and age. There's a lot of issues between people saying, oh, that's a Democratic issue or that's a Republican issue or saying that's their fault or that's their fault. There's a lot of pointing fingers, I think, in today's day and age. And we need to understand that a lot of these things, they're not Republican issues or Democratic issues. They're American issues. And I think it's going to take a nonpartisan leader or at least us as American people coming together and realizing that we can't fix things if we continue pointing fingers, uh, that we need to agree on some things and move forward to fix what's wrong with the United States in the sense that we can't keep pointing fingers um, and fix what's here instead of reaching out with foreign policy to other nations who do need aid. But we have things, once again, that need to be fixed here. Uh, For example, Flint, Michigan, you know, it's been years. That's still not been resolved, but we've got our hands in domestic foreign aid overseas. Uh, Things that aren't just here, but overseas. We could fix what's going on in Flint, Michigan very easily. It's a non-bipartisan issue at that point. It's an American issue. So in the sense that national unity is something that needs to be talked about more, I will have to say that that is the biggest thing that we can use. Great pick. National Unity is definitely one that is so central for us. As we approach the end of our episode, Kylie, I want to first of all let you have an opportunity to share any final thoughts you have or a message you'd like to pass along for those who are interested in helping veterans in their communities. Also, I want to have you share how people can follow you and see what you're up to these days. So for those of you who are listening who are veterans or want to aid the veteran community, the Irreverent Warriors Foundation has at least four hikes per state uh, in various parts of the year. You can definitely find one near you. If you aren't a veteran, unfortunately, you are not able to hike, but you can volunteer. And we're constantly needing volunteers because we are a volunteer-based organization. Somebody who could drive a truck, film the hike, uh, make promo videos, somebody who could DJ the start of the hike or even DJ on your truck through the hike, just something to keep the people going. If you'd like to donate food, water, uh, we'd greatly appreciate that. Um, Local organizations, local restaurants, if you'd like to contribute by saying, here's 20% off your meal when you finish this race, that's something that veterans really do look forward to at the end of the hike. Um, Or if you do have food and water, I recommend dropping it off to your local USO, American Legion, 
or any other veterans aid organization that's within your local community. Because once again, it varies place to place. Uh, I greatly encourage you to look into that. Um, veterans Day is right around the corner. We're always needing people across the United States to help lay wreaths at veterans grave sites. And I think that's something that can be done at a local aspect. Now, for those of you who do want to support Burn Pits 360, I recommend checking out the link that I sent to the uh, uh, email for you. And that is with Mission 22 and the Irreverent Warriors Foundation. They've partnered with Sierra 22. All proceeds from their coffee right now is going to Burn Pits 360 and aiding veterans that are struggling with the after effects of those burn pits, which will be our generation's Agent Orange. Uh, We've seen it on TV. We've seen it on the news. We've heard the news articles. And it's something that we can do is buying a cup of coffee. I think that that's something that a lot of Americans do every day. So buy your cup of coffee and help contribute. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, I've got a pretty decent TikTok following. Most of them are veterans. I kind of put the hikes on blast. Most of it's fitness stuff. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can follow me at Jim Bay K on TikTok. Uh, Fetish Chick on YouTube. There are workout tutorials, breakdowns. I do a lot of the veterans hikes on YouTube. The videos are there. And then also Instagram at Miss Kylie Blakely. You can follow me there as well. Wonderful. I'll be sure to link those links that you mentioned, Kylie, in the show notes below so that people can check them out. Um, also, uh, you mentioned how you have a pretty decent number of followers. I think what she's trying to say is that she's really, really popular, but she's so nice <laughs> and so humble that... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, I, I've i also... I, I, I have a long... I just want to say I have a long way to go to even be close to competing with Kylie in any kind of physical challenge. <laughs> yeah. So I've got, I, I guess, a lot of coffee to drink, a lot of workouts, you know, you know 10 gym memberships. Uh, I've... I've got a long way to go, but I, I will I will persevere. <laughs> I'll listen to this episode to get my perseverance. Um, Kylie, it was such a pleasure to have you on Friends of Fellow Citizens. You you you've done so much already in your career. You know, you're partnering with all these organizations. You're really, I think, you know, you're really answering that individual call to public service. Um, and I I just cannot thank you enough. And I know that there's countless people out there who. You know, I think are going to have a lot of more, a lot of hope for people uh, like ourselves and for people in the audience and just really all the all the people out there who want to make a difference in their community. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And ladies and gentlemen, that'll wrap it up for episode seventy-two and the first episode of twenty twenty-two. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out the links down in the show notes below and subscribe to our email list. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. 